ask you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. And while you're turning, let me say just a word about uh, what's taking place this evening. Um, Nothing that our worship and arts does uh, is done halfway. It's always done with excellence. And tonight, you're going to see uh, not only our choir, but the choir of another church that believes that same way. And uh, they will be combined here. I uh, stepped into the sanctuary for a few minutes Wednesday evening to see just a part of their rehearsal. And uh, the choir not only filled this, but uh, spilled over. It was magnificent. And uh, because it's the Psalms, it is the greatest words ever written for praise to God. And they are married with uh, wonderful uh, music for worship. But it's not just going to be a show where you come and see two great choirs put together. It will be a time of worship where we will all participate. So I would encourage you to be here uh, at 6 o'clock this evening. This is a rare opportunity to have uh, these two wonderful choirs together. It takes a lot of coordination uh, for something like this to take place. So I hope that uh, you will be here to experience that time of worship. Just a reminder of where we are in terms of our passage before I begin with the 35th verse. Uh, Jesus had been in a showdown. The showdown was with various groups that were approaching Jesus. You had uh, the Pharisees that uh, questioned him about paying taxes. They were all throwing out uh, questions that they thought would catch him or ones that they just weren't quite sure in terms of uh, uh, the answer of. But uh, they thought they would put him on a horns of a dilemma where he would lose either way. And so you had the Pharisees, and then the Sadducees confront him about the resurrection with their big question. He deals with that. And then, teacher of the law, the lawyer, asks him the question, well, which is the greatest commandment? He teaches as he deals with with that, summarizing the commandments. And then at the end of that encounter, he says to this lawyer, you are not far from the kingdom. And then it says in the scripture right after that, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So what happens next? Well, the tables are turned. Now, Jesus begins to teach. Now, he's been teaching all along, but he takes the floor, so to speak, not answering their questions, but presenting to them from the Word of God that which is, in one sense, to many, a puzzler from the Scripture, from a psalm. 
But his effort was not to catch them or to get revenge or put them on the spot or anything like that, but to show them what they were missing about who Jesus really is. To show them that while they knew some things, they had not come to grips with the important thing. And so, he begins to teach them about himself as the Christ and what it means to live as a child of the living God. We begin with verse 35, Mark 12. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. (coughs) Lord, once again, we come to you and ask you to teach us, even as you've taught that day, Teach us by your Holy Spirit, even as your word was inspired and David spoke by the Holy Spirit. And then, Lord, will you apply your word that was spoken so long ago to our lives today and tomorrow and next week? We are not in the need of wisdom of men but we are in need of truth from you. And so we ask for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, putting things into perspective, what Jesus does is he begins with the theological issue. He's going to get to uh, the very practical things He's going to hit some practical issues in terms of living as a child of the living God and appropriate ways to uh, display that or not. But he starts with a, a theological issue. Now let's take a look at that in verse 35. Once again, it says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, 
And so here we have the sense that he's, he's turned around. He's not just being pelted with questions anymore. Nobody asked questions anymore. Nobody dared to ask any more questions after he had answered these in such a thorough and pointed fashion. And so he's teaching and he asks this question. How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ, or the Messiah, is the son of David? Now, if you remember last week, what we talked about, his whole emphasis was uh, love. Love for God and then love for one another. That was the uh, way he summarized the commandments. Now, what he is about to do is to bring action to that love, to make it not just a a theoretical thing, but to bring it into their lives, put it into practice. And he begins with the fact that they seem to know a lot about Scripture. Most of the people that were there that had confronted him would at least outwardly whether they really grasped it or not, remember, they, they, they kept not really understanding and not getting it, but they still knew a lot of Scripture. And so he uh, begins with the fact they know a great deal of Scripture, but they haven't put it together with who the Christ is, who the Messiah is, and that's the key. See, these other questions, maybe they might have some importance But he's talking about eternity here. Who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? And that's where eternity rests. And so he goes on, verse 36. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. Now, notice the emphasis is David was speaking, says, by the Holy Spirit, We could say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is significant. This isn't the main point of what he was getting at, and yet we we can't just skip over this because here is one of the places where we see the Lord Jesus affirming that the Psalms are inspired by God, that they are, this is the Word of God. And that's what he's saying about uh, this Psalm, and as David was speaking. Now let's look at the one that he's pointing out. The Lord said to my Lord, (coughs) sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, (coughs) this is the first verse of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is what we would call a messianic psalm because it pointed to the Messiah. It was predictive. It predicted uh, the Messiah, who he would be, what he would be like, what he would do when he came here. Um, And we may not be as familiar with Psalm 110. The people of his day were. This would be more like, probably in terms of familiarity, more like the 23rd Psalm for us, where... Most people, if they've been around churches at all, whether they can quote it or not, they are familiar with the 23rd Psalm, would recognize it, would recognize many phrases from it. 
Well, Psalm 110 was that to them. So when Jesus began to talk about it, those listening might, because they had thought about it before, say, well, yeah, what, what does that mean? I always kind of wondered about that. And so Jesus begins to clarify this puzzler. David himself calls him Lord. That's the word of God. How can he also be his son? Jesus, what he's doing here is challenging these lawyers, teachers of the law. Look, it's time for you to fish or cut bait. It's time for you to make a decision. You can't just sit back in terms of who I am and ignore what you know about the Messiah, what you know about the Christ. They knew that the Messiah was to be the, a son of David. But then they got bent out of shape when people attributed Jesus as the son of David. Remember on the triumphal entry? People were calling him son of David. And these scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law, they were so upset because they knew what that meant. They knew they were identifying him with the Messiah that was coming. And they were upset because Jesus accepted that phrase attributed to him, the son of David, because it always was talking about Christ the Messiah. So the implication of this exchange is that the Messiah is both God and man. He's God, he's the Lord, and he's man the son of David. Now notice what happens then. It says, the large crowd listened to him with delight. They were enjoying this. Now all along, you know, at every point they could, the Pharisees and those religious people of the day questioned his authority. And yet people recognized He teaches unlike anyone we have ever seen. He teaches with great authority. He handled the scripture unlike anyone they had ever seen. And yet, they always stopped short. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the Sadducees would not recognize him as the Christ. So he lays out this theological issue, in essence, identifying himself, clarifying, look, you know, son of David, that's the Messiah. That's been attributed to me. And they knew that he never corrected that, which would be blasphemy if he wasn't, if he wasn't the Christ. And so he accepted that phrase and he is bringing that to their attention again And he's saying, what will you do? What will you believe? And then he turns to the issues, the applications of 
this. He starts out with the theological foundation because the most important thing, their greatest problem was they weren't recognizing the Messiah. But then he contrasts it with the religious, the outward religious things that they were doing. Let's take a look at that. Uh, they were obsessed with several things. And by the way, this is a, if, you, if you're looking at the outline, you got these four Ps. I was so proud of myself. I called Ralph into my office. I said, look at this. I got four Ps here. Because some preachers do that like every single week. And these, to me, just jumped out. Uh, but that's a rarity for me to um, pull them out in that way. But I'm convinced those are the four things that, that they were obsessed with that he talked about here. The first, first being pride, verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces. You know what that is? It's obsession with an image. That's what their thing was. The scribes would wear these long, white, flowing robes that would go clear down to their ankles. And then at the bottom, there would be a a fringe. Some say it was a gold fringe, but it was some kind of a fringe. Very fancy, but it would really stand out in that day because most people wore colorful clothing. And so if you were in the marketplace and you saw somebody, uh, you could see them from a distance walking in this white, long robe. Yesterday I did a wedding and I wore my robe. You know, that it would be like me having that, that robe that I wore in here for the wedding, but then going over to the mall and walking, you know, through the mall kind of like this. Now, here's the difference. <laughs> There's a big difference. Uh, in that day, when you walked around with a white flowing robe, they would address them. Oh, Rabbi. People would stand up as they passed. Oh, teacher. And I suspect that wouldn't have happened if I wore my black robe over, over at the mall. Uh, I probably wouldn't be getting uh, terms of endearment and respect and, and that kind of a thing. But that's why they did it. That's what they wanted. It was making a statement, I am a learned man. I am not here to be a carpenter. I'm not going to, as you see, going to be digging ditches. I am a man of books, a learned man. And there was great respect for that. I'm above that. And that's what they wanted people to think. In our day, it may be a preacher dressing like a businessman so that the educated, uh, wealthy people in the congregation will know that he's professional too. Or it could be on the other end. Some churches you go to and the preacher is up front and he's uh, 
wearing uh, blue jeans and a t-shirt and uh, maybe sandals, and he's doing that so that, that people say, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, this, is, this guy relates to uh, the young people. I think Jesus would say, you know what the problem with those things are? It's not, the problem is not necessarily what you're wearing, but the problem is spending a lot of time working on that trying to project who you are by how you look. And that's what he says to these teachers of the law. He's not impressed with us creating image to boost ourselves above others. Now, the teachers of the law were also obsessed with position. Now, all these overlap, I, I realize. They're my four Ps. They're very close together, uh, and you probably could interchange some of them, but they were obsessed with position, verse 39, uh, and to have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. That also gave them position. Now, the scribes were honored above the elderly, even above their own parents. In the synagogues, the, the scribes were given the ultimate place of honor. They sat on a bench with their backs against the chest that held the Torah. It was in front of everybody with their faces toward the congregation. You know, it would be something like while I'm preaching, if we had, you know, the elders sitting here in front around the communion table facing you. <laughs> now, our elders wouldn't want to do that, and you wouldn't want them to do that. But in this day, that was the ultimate place of honor, and they insisted upon that. They could be seen by everyone. They were seen then as holy men. And most of them played that part well. Because that's what they wanted people to think. They were proud and arrogant, many of them. They were also obsessed with power. Verse 40. It says, they devour widows' houses. Now, some commentators think that this uh, refers to them actually stealing from the widows, either taking over their homes or somehow stealing from them. That's, that's possible, but of course that would be condemned. That's condemned you know, everywhere else. I suspect that it is probably talking about something more subtle than that, something like these teachers of the law, living off the tithes and offerings of the widows, but then not caring for them because they were not important people, because the widows were not impressive people. And in this sense, Jesus condemns that. He exposes that right here. And then the fourth, verse 40. 
and for a show, make lengthy prayers. This is their piosity. Now, you might say, boy, you are stretching the peas here. I got to tell you, I was rather, well, here it is. I almost said I was rather proud of that one, and that would have put me in their category. But I was thinking of a false piety. And I thought the word pious. And then I thought I was coining a word with piosity until I typed it in my sermon and it didn't show up for spell check and I found out that's a real word. Here's what piosity means. Because piety is a good thing. It's a, it's a genuine holiness. But piosity is an exaggerated and superficial piousness. In other words, it's just the, the surface thing. It, you look that way. You look as if you're pious. But it's just a surface thing. How did they show it? Well, by their lengthy public prayers. I had a professor in my training that said, your public prayer should be brief. Save your lengthy prayers for your prayer closet. Well, that's kind of the same emphasis. Because the reality, some people are impressed when they hear a lengthy, flowery prayer out in public. And they might be impressed because it's something they don't think they could ever do. And that's what the teachers of the law loved to do, to try to impress people with that outward, surfacy piety. Now look at the results. Verse, verse 40. Such men will be punished most severely. Why punished most severely? Well, because it's not genuine. Because they didn't have their theology right at the beginning, and so their actions that follow their theology are wrong. Those, because they don't have a relationship with Christ, and they are showing it in their actions, will be punished most Severely. But I want to tell you another impact. I think that one's rather straightforward that those things have. And that is the impact on those who are checking out Christianity for validity. Who are saying, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if, if this faith thing is for real. Carl Rahner said this, the number one cause of atheism is Christians. Those who proclaim God with their mouths and deny him with their lifestyles is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. Mahatma Gandhi said, if Christians 
would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. That breaks my heart. I've been to India. What an impact if Gandhi had ever come to Christ, which to our knowledge he never did. His problem was not with Jesus. It was with his followers. Now, we always want to point people to Jesus. But the truth is, for many, it's the way his followers act that communicate who Jesus is. And so the question, do I have Christ or religion? Well, are you caught up in any of those four P's or all of them? Pride, position, power, piosity. You need to know this. Your only hope for freedom from those is relationship with Christ. It's not religion. It's not about doing the outward things. It's not about impressing other people. It's about relationship with God through Christ. In Christ, there's a new identity. You don't have to put others down to gain your own identity. In Christ, power is not lording it over others. But in the freedom of knowing that things are in His hands, you don't have to be in control. In fact, control is just an illusion. If you think you're in control, you are not. It is God who is in control. You don't need an outward false piety. You can be yourself. You're with God's people. And God's people really understand the struggles we all go through, and it's okay to talk out loud about those. Keith Miller said, Our modern church is filled with many people who look pure, sound pure, and are inwardly sick of themselves, their weaknesses, their frustration, and the lack of reality around them in the church. Our non-Christian friends feel either that bunch of nice, untroubled people would never understand my problems, or the more perceptive pagans who know us socially or professionally feel that we Christians are either grossly protected and ignorant about the human situations or are out-and-out hypocrites who will not confess the sins and weakness of our pagan friends. But our pagan friends know intuitively to be universal. Now look, I suppose you can go too far with that. This week I hit... uh, the church website of an acquaintance of mine. And I, I just, frankly, I just had to laugh. And God bless them as a church. It, their, their thing says, you know, how in, at websites it says, who are we or who we are. Theirs said this. We are a bunch of troubled, touchy, self-centered people who God has chosen and brought together to be his church. Now, that's very honest, but 
I'm not sure I'd want to be a part of that if I, if I hit their website, even though that may be true of many churches. But I, I, I'm convinced that that's what he wanted to get across, is what Keith Miller has said. Look, we know who we are. We're people. We understand that. We may not put it that way. But if you're new here at St. Andrews or you really don't know the folks in the church that well, I do want you to know that whatever issues you have in your life, there are people here with either those exact issues or very parallel ones. That's just the case in a church our size. But we're real people on a pilgrimage to have genuine growing faith and have our relationship with Christ make a difference in our life. I've seen it again and again. When people begin to be honest about their struggles and their needs, that's when God steps in and ministers to those needs. It's when people are in the cover-up mode saying, you know, like having the big robe on or doing the acts of piety and people are just in cover-up and in denial. I've seldom seen God work in people that way. That's what, how, why Jesus was confronting these, these teachers of the law. I want to leave you with, with another brief application. And it points to Christ. Because I think, I think the bottom line of what these guys were dealing with was a fear of man. And we've got to deal with our own fear of man, repenting. You might say, well, those people weren't acting like they feared man. Underneath, that's exactly what it was. They were... Uh, They feared man so much they had to put themselves up to put others down. They feared what others thought of them, and they missed Christ right in front of them. You adults, there's many ways this applies. One way that I just simply cannot ignore, because we've had a number of folks lose their jobs recently, You need to know this. Your identity is not in your job. That's not who you are. Your identity is not in your family. That's not who you are. Or in your lack of a job or lack of a family. If you're in relationship with Christ, You're a child of the living God. That's your identity. And you young folks, especially you get into the later grades of elementary school and sixth grade, middle school, high school, don't spend time and energy all about worrying about how you look, how others are going to see you, 
That's not who you are. Go to school and ask God to enable you to go to school not thinking about yourself all day. Not thinking about what others will think of you. Repent of that. Jesus warned us against that. Here's why. He has given us our new identity. Remember the teachers of the law trying to gain favorable judgments by dressing in their flowing robes? You know what Jesus did? He has clothed us in his robe of obedience, of righteousness. We don't need to make our own robes because he has shown us really who we are. If you're trusting in Christ alone, you are a child of the living God. And that's what really matters. Let's bow together.